Hello, I'm Matt Schiavenza, and welcome to Asia Abridged, the podcast where we present the best moments from Asia society in 15 minutes or less. In today's episode, we hear from Ruchir Sharma. He's the head of emerging markets and chief global strategist at Morgan Stanley and an expert on the global economy. Sharma recently appeared at Asia Society to discuss the key economic trends shaping Asia. Here, he tells Asia Society Executive Vice President Tom Nagorski about what to expect from the Chinese economy in 2018. And I think in China, basically, what's happened uh, over the last few years has been quite staggering, which is that you've really sort of, you know, uh, had the emergence of two Chinas, a new China, and then there is still the old China. There is a new China, which is the private sector-led tech enterprises of China. As you well know that of the 10 largest companies in the world now by market value, two of them are Chinese, Tencent and Alibaba. And their emergence has just been staggering because they've gone from virtually nothing to becoming these very large, you know, sort of corporations. And I think that we should just pause for a second and and think about what that tells you about the Chinese economic model, because so much and so many of us are used to thinking of the Chinese economic model as being state-driven, which is that what the state wants, what's state-driven. And here what's happened is like absolutely staggering, which is that you've, you're, that you've had the emergence of these companies, but they've had nothing to do with the state. And I think that's one of the big trends in China, which we sort of tend to underestimate, which is that that over the last 30 years, to me, the single biggest development in China has not been how much uh, what the state has done, but how much the role of the state has declined. So it's like in terms of in, a, in the share of economic activity, it's gone from being 90% to 30% or something now. So a massive decline and, the, and, and what's emerging in the, in the shadows of this is obviously sort of like this new China and these companies which are coming up. So Tencent, Alibaba, in fact, as I think it was uh, someone who told this to me out there when I was there uh, a year or so ago was that, that the state really did not anticipate the emergence of these companies, but, but they've emerged so quickly that now they're not quite sure what to do about them. But the only good thing is the fact that these companies are quite happy to sort of, you know, like are very clear about ultimately who's the boss. So they will cooperate with the state wherever required, but the way how, and how powerful these companies have emerged has been staggering. I remember when I first wrote my book in Breakout Nations, one of the observations I had made there was that in China, it is impossible to find any billionaire who is worth more than $10 billion. And that was almost like an unsaid rule in China, which is that if your wealth becomes too big, you almost threaten the party and the state. And so... There was always the original sin, as we call it in China, that you'd find something wrong that the business person had done if he became too big. And and next he would be sort of, you know, in jail or, de- or, or sort of his assets would be sort of seized or something would happen when no billionaire in China was worth more than $10 billion when I wrote my first book in 2012. And today you have a host of billionaires who are worth more than $10 billion uh, in China. This has all happened in the last four, five years. And this has really been because of this explosion in new China that's taken place. Still, what gives me some pause for concern, you know, because there's so much sort of uh, talk about uh, the rise of China, the most, now when we think of the most powerful man in the world, we think of Xi Jinping, not Trump for some reason, but, you know, but, uh, but we think of Xi Jinping now. And so it's all about really about China and, and you have like about the inevitable rise of China and, and stuff. There are only a couple of things which give me some pause for concern as far uh, like on that narrative. One is that this old China is still 
tacking on debt like never before. As I said so in my last year's comments also out here, that no developing country has taken on as much debt as China has taken on this decade. This is not China, uh, a 30-year story, which is that like in the 1980s and 1990s and even for much of last decade, China's debt as a share of its economy was quite stable. But in a, like in order to meet its political objectives, even as it's become richer and uh, the base has gotten higher, China has just been sort of taking on this massive amounts of debt over the last six to seven years. And so far, there's not been an, uh, there's been a big slowdown in China. The Chinese growth rate in 2010 was 10%, and now it's about six, six and a half percent. So there's been a big slowdown. In nominal terms, the slowdown has been even bigger. And all those people, uh, I remember like in 2007, 2008, who were forecasting that China would catch up with the United States as the world's largest economy by the end of this decade. Obviously, those forecasts are not going to quite play out because both the Chinese economic growth has slowed down in uh, and in nominal dollar terms, the growth has slowed down even more. So our our sort of projection now is that at best China will catch up to the United States as the world's largest economy by about 2030 or so, if it carries on on this linear path. But this is very different from what many of the rosy projections were saying about 10, 15 years ago. But more significantly, it's this debt problem, which is that, uh, and this is something which I think that the top Chinese leadership is quite aware of, and that came through in the party congress as well, where they spoke about quality of growth rather than quantity of growth. The issue is that, will they be able to live with that in terms of the fact that not have a growth target, let the economy grow at, at whatever it does. And I think that this is where we have to be a bit careful about too much linear thinking, because the one thing which you say about the United States, which I find remarkable, is this, that since it's been a superpower, let's say since the start of the 20th century, the United States has suffered 23 recessions and one Great Depression. And out of all of these, it has emerged stronger. There's something almost cleansing about having these recessions where you clean out the excesses and, and you move ahead. China so far has not faced a single real recession ever since its growth boom began. And that test is yet to come, and it will come. This inevitability that China, all because the government is so powerful and it'll be able to avoid business cycles and it'll be able to keep growing in this linear way. Well, we have to be a bit careful of that because we have to see what happens when you are tested. Because so often I've seen the great economic stories unravel or sort of be set back by many years, if not decades, if they have one crisis on the way. It's just to sort of galvanize that. How will the Chinese political system react to a financial crisis or to like even one recession? And as I said, that the United States we know has gone through this. And this shows up in the most telling statistics, which is that the one place where China has not been able to make any progress, I feel, is in the internationalization of the renminbi. So if you look at it today, China today accounts uh, for well over, uh, you know, for about 12%, I think, or even more now, I mean, of, of global GDP. Yet as a share of foreign exchange reserves, if you look at it in the world, China accounts for less than 1%. And the U.S. dollar accounts for two-thirds of global FX reserves. You know, so it's, it, you know, like, so people's money is still a bit reluctant to sort of back it up in this very long-term assets because of these fears about what exactly will happen when this test comes. Over 90% of all transactions in the world today involve the U.S. dollar. The Chinese currency basically is hardly there in, in the international transactions because there are capital controls in China. And the capital controls are there in China because you fear that, uh, that what will happen uh, if you let this money flow out of China, especially when you have such a big debt boom in China.
Yeah. So I think that it's it's a very sort of you know conflicting story for me. I mean, or much more conflicting than what the popular narrative is, which is all about the rise and inevitable rise of China's superpower and stuff. Yes, I get that. I really appreciate it, you know what's happening on, in the new China, the new economy, but they still have these problems of debt and capital controls to deal with, and the fact that they, uh, that at some point in time the test is going to come, how do they survive an economic downturn, which is natural in any business cycle. So that's for me the really big story out of Asia. China and India, the world's two largest countries, are often referred to as a twin pair, but Sharma points out that comparisons of the two often miss how different they are from each other. Here's what he had to say about India. The politics in India and what's happening on the macro stuff. And we love speaking about Modi's India and like, you know, Modi India as if they're the same thing. To me, the whole, the biggest story is that, is the fact that the politics and Modi basically in India are like irrelevant. That the, because, because they're not able to move the needle much in terms of economic growth. Economic growth in India is coming from a low base and continues to sort of increase, but it'll, it'll never reach the China kind of uh, stage because because India has never been able to build a manufacturing base as China has built uh, or like had built over the last 30 years or so. As I was just telling Tom about this uh, in the anteroom, which is that the uh, lack of Indian success in manufacturing is sort of captured in so many ways, but in this one anecdote, which I find fascinating, which is that it's a fairly religious country. And as part of the Hindu religion, they use something called incense sticks in terms of prayers and stuff like that. And any Indians here would know that. And it's amazing that 75% of these incense sticks are manufactured in Vietnam. Uh, because, you know, and, and, and similarly, like all the Indian idols, uh, you know, there's a lot of idol worship in India, as you, as you well know, they're all made in China in terms of the stuff. So it just is the complete lack of manufacturing in India is what makes it very difficult to create jobs at a mass scale and for India to sort of uh, grow the way China did uh, in its early to mid stages of the uh, development cycle. But in India, what is remarkable is that, so we look at, you know, where do we find the good quality companies to invest. And in terms of the breadth, we find that the single biggest market we find in terms of the breadth of companies to invest in accessible to foreign investors is India, in terms of good quality companies. And I, I define good quality companies which are able to steadily grow their earnings and give you a good return on equity of 15% or above. Highest concentration we find of any country in the world after the United States is India in terms of good quality companies. So it's a country that you want to like always be engaged in, but more from a bottom-up level rather than keep you know worrying about what Modi is doing and what's happening there on that front. I mean, it just is sort of... So, it just so we can matter. stop half of the programs we do on <laughs> India and Modi, right? We should just stop Yeah, doing because that. I think, you know, like he's a fascinating character from a geopolitical standpoint. He's a fascinating character from a political standpoint. I mean, I love traveling and elections in India and figuring out what's going on and stuff. But from an economic standpoint, I mean, I just feel that, you know, like that's just noise. Yeah, because you do. And of course, the advice I always give to foreign investors in India is that do not directly invest in India. It's it's really tough to do that. But but there are these really good quality companies in India and some very good entrepreneurs who know how to negotiate the local environment. Find out who these people are and or like often, you know who these people are, give them the money and you'll make lots of money on uh, riding their back. So that's the way I think that you basically deal with India. 
Thank you for listening to Asia Abridged. If you want to hear more, you can visit our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast, and you can find the link for the full video of the event on our site. You can also subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Asia Society. Until next time, this is Matt Skiavenza.